You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for uh, uh, being here this morning, and I hope God's going to bless all of us through his word in, in Genesis 16. And I do want to thank uh, Tanner and Allie um, and KJ and Wynn for being here. Great to see you guys. Um, we love you, and thank you so much for being here. It was awesome. And if I don't go too long, you'll get to do another song at the end, right? Okay. Um, you have to bear with me a little bit this morning. I've been struggling with uh, the kind of the um, crud that's going around and actually lost my voice on Friday. I had a deposition. Uh, it was a three-hour deposition, and I was doing all the talking and basically lost my voice and was concerned and texted Oliver and said, can you man up if I can't talk? And, of course, he said he would, but it's, I think we're going to be okay. I've got my water here, and, and so we're good. Um, as, as he said, I'm Stephen Lewis. I am not the lead elder. I want to correct that. I just happened to be the chairman of the elder board, and that was not a position that I got to vote on. I was appointed to that, so that's, I'm not the lead elder. But I am an elder, and I'm excited about that, and... Uh, um, uh, just appreciate the opportunity to speak. And, and one of the things we're going to try to do over the next um, year or so is invite others to come other than Oliver because it, it really is difficult to prepare just Sunday after Sunday for um, sermons. And, it, and when, you, when you really care about it and you put preparation time into it, it can be very taxing and you can get burned out. So um, we're going to have Jim Thompson here in a couple weeks. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, so anyway, I hope you're... Hope you're blessed this morning. I hope, hope that God's got something to say through me. Um, as my lovely wife um, has the gift of encouragement, um, she reminded me that sometimes when I teach, I can go uh, too deep and too detailed. And uh, that reminded me of one of my favorite um, comic strips is Foxtrot. I don't know if you've ever seen Foxtrot, but... Uh, it's, it's really one of my favorite. In fact, I've got it in my study on my, on my desk um, to remind me about things. So I want to show it to you. It's a three-panel slide. And uh, um, and he's thinking about that. So I, I just love that. that and, and I promise you... <clears throat> We are not going to go that deep, uh, but um, I hope that we'll go deeper than just surface level of, of Scripture this morning uh, to, uh, to figure out what God's got to say uh, to us in a text that is over 2,000 years old, and how does that apply to us today? And, and uh, So anyway, um, I hope we'll, we'll have some good things in store for us. As some of you know, um, I'm an attorney, and I do a lot of trial work. I'm in the courtroom a good bit, and I talk to a lot of juries. In fact, I had a trial a couple weeks ago, and one of the things I tell them in kind of my opening statement at the beginning of the case is that, you know, everybody has a story, and I'm telling them the story uh, of my client, whatever that story is, and uh, I typically like to have a theme about the story um, for them to just think about as they go through it, and in my opening statement, I always say, I'm not here this morning to argue my case to you. 
That will come later. At the end of all the evidence, I'll stand up and I'll tell you what we think the evidence shows. But right now, in my opening statement, I tell juries that I'm trying to identify some issues that I want you to think about as we go through the story of my client's case. And so I'm going to do the same thing this morning. I'm going to identify some issues that I want you to think about as we go through the story of Abram and Sari and uh, Hagar. <clears throat> so if you came today thinking, oh gosh, we're in Genesis, it's another Old Testament, you know, dry story, then think again, because here are some of the issues that we're going to talk about today and some of the things we're going to hear about. Um, we're going to hear about polygamy and slavery and consensual and maybe non-consensual adultery, dysfunctional family relationships, oppression, abuse, jealousy, passivity, sin, envy, and then finally, blessing. So if you're intrigued by that, then put your seatbelt on and we're going we're gonna to dive right in. Um, the last time I taught um, was actually on Abraham in Genesis 22. We were doing a, <clears throat> a one faith series. And um, at that point, of course, you remember in Genesis 22, Abraham's being tested by God um, with Isaac and whether or not he is willing to sacrifice um, Isaac. And so at that point, uh, just several chapters past what we're going to talk about today, um, he was sort of at the pinnacle of his faith walk with God. He trusted God so much that he was willing to sacrifice his son because he knew that God would somehow make that right. Well, in Genesis 16, Abram is not Abraham yet. He's still Abram. And uh, unfortunately, he's not quite in the place that he was uh, in, in uh, Genesis 22. If you remember, since we've been going through Genesis, uh, in Genesis 12, um, God calls Abraham to, to, to leave his, his, his home, his country, and his family, and God says, you know, I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you. Um, and he was doing well with that up until the little hiccup with Pharaoh and Sari, where he um, told Pharaoh that uh, Sari was his sister, uh, so no harm would come come on him. In some circles, we call that cowardice. But nonetheless, that's sort of where he was at, at that point. Then in chapter 13, <clears throat> his nephew Lot and he uh, came to kind of a, a parting of the ways, and, and um, Abraham or Abram trusts God and says, all right, Lot, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right, and we'll, we'll figure it out. And, and God tells Abram at that point that your offspring will be like the dust account, uh, they, so many will be like the dust of the earth. Well, then in chapter 14, Lot gets into trouble. He's got to go rescue Lot. Um, and he, in fact, um, is strong enough in his faith at that point that he rejects an offer by the king of, of, of Sodom and basically says, no, 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 I have taken an oath to the creator of the universe that I will not do what you're asking me to do. And then, of course, in 15 that Oliver taught last week, <clears throat> excuse me, By the way, Beth said, if I can't continue, she'll come up and just read my notes for you. So we can look forward to that. And then in chapter 15, God's covenant with Abraham. <clears throat> he credits Abraham's faithfulness and credits Abraham's faith as righteousness to him. And that's how strong 
Abraham's faith was at that point. Um, and by all accounts, Abraham is a leader. He is strong in his faith, and he is, he's God's man. So then we get to Genesis 16. And let me set the stage for you for just a minute. In the prior chapters from chapter 12 through 15, God has promised Abram no less than eight times that he is going to give him uh, descendants that will be too many to count. Eight times up until that point, God has promised that. But this is 10 years after the last promise that God made in chapter 15. So let's go to the scripture and, and, and let's see, because I think you're going to find that Abram, over those 10 years, things may have changed a little bit with regard to his, his faith walk. Um, verse 1 of chapter 16, and by the way, if you have your Bibles, open them up or your devices or whatever. If not, we'll have the verses on the screen. Um, so in chapter 16, verse 1, now Sari, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. Uh, now, let's stop right there. Um, Abram, if you remember, had complained about this to, to God back in chapter 15 when he said, I don't have any children. I'm going to have to have my servant be an heir. And he was kind of whining to it about God. And that's when God again promised him, no, you are going to have so many descendants, nobody will be able to count them. So, Sari says, um, after 10 years, of course, they've been in Canaan for 10 years, she says, um, uh, or the text says that Abram's wife had borne him no children, but she had a maidservant, and the maidservant was named Hagar, and she was an Egyptian maidservant. And if you remember, again, back from um, chapter 12, Pharaoh gave Abram gifts. When he left that land, Pharaoh gave Abram some gifts, and they were slaves, and some of them were maidservants. And so we think that, that she came from that, that gifting that Pharaoh did as an Egyptian um, slave, and she was a maidservant that had been with, with Abram and, and Sari for at least 10 years. Now, let me just take a quick aside here. Sorry, Beth, but this is one of those details. Uh, quick aside, it's interesting to me that, that here uh, Jews had Egyptian slaves with them. Yet, as we know later, Egyptians will have Jewish slaves, um, namely uh, the people of Israel. And, and I want to make clear that when Scripture talks about uh, slavery or as we'll see later, uh, kind of concubines, or uh, polygamy. That doesn't mean that, that God is condoning those practices. In fact, most of the time, if not all the time, when those practices are done, um, Scripture shows exactly what the, the severe and negative consequences of those practices are. Um, so just keep that in mind as we go through this story, how God works with us, exactly where we are, even when we as a people or a family or whatever make poor choices. So verse 2, Sari says, as a result of it being 10 years now since they've been there and, and God has not given her any children, she says, the Lord has kept me from having children. Um, now, she identifies this problem, or at least she believes it's a perceived problem, that she can't have children. So in this situation, she's got several responses. At least I think she's got several responses. The first, she can do, the first thing she can do is just trust. God has promised, as I said, no, no less than eight times that, 
that there are going to be so many descendants um, that, the, that you won't be able to count them. So she can have faith and trust that God's promises is true and wait. Or she can get mad and frustrated at God and um, just say, well, he's obviously not keeping his promise. And that, that would be a lack of faith, in my opinion, based on what God has promised so far. Or, number three, she can take matters into her own hands and just say, I don't trust, and this is going to happen, and I'm going to make it happen. Well, Sari chooses door number three and takes matters into her own hands, and she doesn't, and, and door number three doesn't include God's plan. Um, so what does she say? She says, well, you've got uh, the second part of that, um, go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I, you can see that, can build a family through her. Not we, God, you and me. She's not trying to partner with God in this plan. She's saying maybe I can build a family um, through that. As far as the maidservant thing and, and why she even brings this up, go sleep with a maidservant, it's not just a matter of find some woman to go sleep with. In the ancient times, um, it was a known practice that if the, the patriarch of a family could not have children um, and, and his wife could not bear children, that they would choose typically a slave or another person within the community to be a surrogate mother so that the, there could be a, a male heir to carry on the name. And that's what's going on here. But again, it, I think it would be a misinterpretation of Scripture here to say that God is condoning the practice of, of, of having um, an Egyptian slave bear a child for Abram. Um, that's just not his plan, and it's not what he intended. Um, but we, as we will see, he will still bring blessing from it, as he, as he does a lot of times when we screw up and make terrible decisions. God blesses that anyway, despite the fact that it's a poor decision. So there, I think there are three things here that, that we take away from this. First is, this is not God's plan. Number two, let's look at the passivity of, of Abram here, because uh, she says, go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And as you can see at the end of, of verse two, Abram agreed to what Sarah said. Um, remember the Garden of Eden. This sort of um, goes back to there. Remember Adam's passivity. Adam was right there when Eve was tempted, and yet he was, he was too passive to step in and say, no, this is not God's plan. This is not what God said. Um, so it reminded me of, of the passivity of another patriarch of ours, Adam. And then the third thing is the apparent lack of Abraham's faith. He's kind of come full circle now where um, he was a man full of faith in chapter 15, um, and had believed God and had been credited to him as righteousness, yet now he is saying, okay, I'm going to go with Sarah, Sarai's plan and not God's plan. Um, so I, I think we can take some things away from that, and we'll talk about that at the end, but let's, let's keep going. Um, so in verse 3, um, so, so after Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her uh, to her husband to be his wife. Now, that doesn't mean that she was on the same par. She was not an equal wife with, with Sarah. Um, but back then, polygamy um, was a known thing, and it was done even among the people of God. Um, and so she was called a wife, but she was not on the same level 
uh, with Sarah, and we're going to see why, how that causes some problems here uh, in just a minute as, as we go through. Uh, and then verse, the second half of that verse, <clears throat> uh, verse 4, uh, is uh, uh, he slept with Hagar uh, and she conceived. So now we know that at least the conception problems that Abraham and Sari were having were, were Sari. And again, that's going to that, that's lead us into some conflict here uh, in just a minute as we go through the passage. Um, but uh, it's going to tell us two things. If you look at the second half of verse 4, uh, it, it, it starts right here. Um, uh, so he slept with Hagar and she conceived when she knew, um, and she being Hagar, knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress, um, Sari. Uh, well, the word despise there is not a gentle word, um, and it, it, it typically never is. But it appears that Hagar's ability to conceive when Sari couldn't conceive um, makes her look down on Sari. And not just look down on her, but it's an actual contempt uh, of Sari um, because the, the word despise is a strong word there. Um, and so we think that, I say we, I've read some commentaries on it, we think that essentially um, uh, Hagar is elevating herself now above Sari because of her ability to conceive and Sari's inability to conceive. Because if you, and most of you understand this, but back in ancient times, um, uh, women most of the time derived a sense of value, a real sense of value, out of their ability to conceive and to have children and continue um, the, the name uh, of their family. Um, and so Sari uh, here is um, understandably upset uh, because her sense of value is diminishing, or at least in her mind, her sense of value and worth is diminishing because of her inability to conceive. And quite frankly, she appears to be upset that that's, that Hagar is sort of holding this over her and, and, and has a, an attitude of contempt against her. Um, and Hagar's proud of being pregnant with Abraham's um, child. And so Here's what happens after this in verse 5. Um, uh, then Sarah said to Abraham, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Well, <clears throat> Abram, welcome to the unending bliss of marriage. Um, she is mad, and she is finding a way to blame Abram for all of this. Uh, Beth and I are doing some premarital counseling with a couple, and uh, we're listening to uh, a podcast by Tim Keller, um, who's great, by the way. He's such a great communicator. And um, uh, it's, a, it's a podcast. It's, I think it's a five-podcast five, uh, series. And we were listening to it the other night, Beth and I together, and Tim Keller said something that I thought at the time was really weird. And what he said is, he said, I am so tired of hearing about how blissful, you know, when you're talking to young couples about getting married, young couples talking about marriage, I'm just getting tired of how, how people talk about how sweet marriage is and how, what a blissful experience it is. And then he says this, he says, marriage is above all else 
confrontational. And I thought, well, that's, that's not... That's not very churchy, you know, to say that, that something God's designed is confrontational. And he went on to explain, as, as Keller does very well, he, he went on to explain that, that marriage, the marriage covenant is so intimate that it forces you, number one, to confront yourself, for each spouse to confront themselves about issues they have or, or whatever it is, the weaknesses that they bring to the table, you confront yourself. But also marriage, because it is so intimate, it allows you to then allow your spouse to confront you with things. Um, and, and Keller says, he, go, he goes to a long, um, uh, he goes to a, a large degree to say how you need to do that in gentleness and respect, but there's still a confrontation of who you are because the point of marriage, one of the points of marriage, is to help your spouse become the person that Jesus wants them to be and to, to, to be a fire, if you will, um, to burn off all the chaff um, and to help them um, become like the image of Christ. And so when that's done correctly and when it's done in love and respect, it's a great thing. Confrontation is a great thing. But as we can see here, when it's done in an unhealthy way, then it turns into the blame game, um, and it turns into accusations against each other. Um, and so, <clears throat> as, as people in the ancient times were reading or hearing this story, I can't help but think that they thought back again to Genesis, um, where um, they were reminded of Adam and Eve when, when Eve took matters into her own hands um, and to solve a problem that she saw, or at least a perceived problem. She said, well, wait a minute, there's, the serpent is telling me there's good and evil out there, and I don't, I don't know anything about that, or we don't know anything about that. We, we need that, and so I need to take matters into my own hands, and I'm going to turn to my husband and tell him to do the same thing. Um, and uh, there was passivity there uh, with Adam, not partnership, not leadership, but passivity. Um, and so then, even in Genesis 3, the blame game starts because when God is walking through the garden and says, Adam, where are you? Um, and he confronts Adam with what has gone on. Um, at, you remember what Adam says? Adam says, the woman you put, me, put here with me, um, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. And then you can see God kind of looking at Eve and Eve goes, well, the serpent that you put here deceived me. And so Sari is doing the same thing. She is saying, you, Abram, are responsible for my suffering. And so this is just a, just a, a, a complete mess uh, because there's no leadership, there's no partnership, there's no loving, intimate relationship that works out a perceived problem and then goes back to your, your, your foundation of trust in what God has said numerous times. But here we are. So it occurred to me that, that in our sin nature, our human nature and what the Bible calls sin nature, blaming others and not taking responsibility, that's just so much more comfortable for us than actually stepping up and taking responsibility. But the thing is, when you're secure in who you are based on how much God values you, not Sari finding her self-worth or her value in um, being able 
to conceive, but in how much God values her. When you're in a healthy place um, of understanding where your value comes from, then you can say, I screwed up. And, and your partner, um, your community, um, will see that as taking responsibility, um, and it will, it will most oftentimes remedy perceived problems that we have that are stemmed from a lack of faith. But that doesn't happen here. In fact, Abram, again, is extremely passive. In fact, what he says in verse 6 uh, is very telling. He says to, to Sarah, your servant is in your hands. Um, and in fact, the, the ESV says your servant is in your power. So he's empowering Sari uh, to do whatever she wants to do. And then he says, do with her whatever you think best. Again, the ESV says, do to her as you please. So he's giving the green light for Sari, who is mad, because Hagar is holding this uh, unable to conceive over her head, and actually uh, with contempt, he's giving a green light for Sari to do whatever um, she thinks is best, which, of course, in that state of mind, in a distrust of God, in a... um, uh, dysfunctional relationship with your husband, um, she's not in the right frame of mind to do anything that's gonna, that where anything good is going to come out of it. So um, this is the ultimate act, in my opinion, the ultimate act of passivity. It's not leadership. It's not partnership. It's not mutual respect. Um, and it's not love. It's just an abdication of any responsibility for your actions or your, your wife's actions. So what are the consequences of that? Well, you can, if you hadn't even read past there, you can probably figure out what happened. Verse 6, then Sari, or the second half of verse 6, then Sari mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Um, The the theologians think that um, she probably fled back to Egypt or was heading back to Egypt. Um, and they think that she probably would not have made it, that she was going to die on the way. So here we have the patriarch and matriarch of, of our people, um, of our descendants, sending a pregnant Egyptian slave into the desert to die, essentially. Um, and, and so this is nothing short of just an absolute, complete mess. You've got marital strife, injured and broken relationships, relationship with God has been fractured at this point. Um, You've got a pregnant Egyptian slave who's about to go, and she and her unborn baby are probably going to die in the desert. This is really a hopeless situation. But there's good news for us this morning, church, and and that good news is that we serve a God who specializes in taking hopeless um, situations and filling them with hope. We serve a God who has a PhD um, in restoring relationships. And we serve a God who loves us too much to leave us in our place of brokenness. And he's about to show up in this story, and he's about to show up in a big way. Um, Verse 7 is a very interesting verse. It says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert, Um, This, by the way, is the first appearance in Scripture of the phrase, the angel of the Lord, to describe a messenger. Oliver talked last week about um, uh, Melchizedek, 
who some theologians believe may have been a, a, a theophany, which is a, an incarnation, of, a, a pre-Jesus incarnation of Jesus in an ancient time. And, and Oliver, and I agree with you that I don't think um, uh, Melchizedek was, was that. Uh, but uh, the, the, the angel of the Lord here is a little bit different. Um, it's the first use of that phrase, um, and, th- and that phrase usually refers to a very particular messenger um, that's different from other angelic appearances. I mean, we have angelic appearances throughout the Bible, but this phrase indicates something a little bit different. And you'll notice in a minute that one of the differences here is that this angel is not speaking for God. In fact, this angel is speaking in first person um, as God. Um, so uh, theologians are split. Some of them think this is just a very special angel who God has given the authority to speak in, in first person for him. Or this is a pre-incarnate uh, manifestation of Christ as God's messenger, a, a theophany, as, as Oliver said last week. Well, I personally believe, and, and this is, you know, there's a disclaimer, the opinions of the, of the speaker do not indicate the uh, position of city lights on this, on, but, but I personally think this is a manifestation, an incarnate manifestation of Jesus, and I think that for, for several reasons. First of all, he does speak in first person, and we'll see that in just a minute, um, as he is God, not speaking for God. And then secondly, this scene reminds me of another Jesus encounter um, that we're all familiar with. So in verse 7, um, uh, and, and we'll go into that in just a second, but in verse 7, so the angel of the Lord finds um, Hagar near a spring. Um, and by the way, in verse 14 that we haven't gotten to yet, and you don't need to put it on the, on the board, Becca, but tells us that it's at a well, actually, that, that he finds her at a spring, um, near a spring, at a well. Um, so here's a woman with, obviously, a compromised past and a challenging life situation going on, both sexually and relationally with her community. Um, she's basically an outcast um, from society. She's by herself at a well. God finds her there. He has an intimate conversation with her. And in that, in that very brief conversation, he breathes life into her with compassion and with honor. And he actually reveals more of himself to her than he has so, so far in the narrative to anybody else. And then ultimately, she recognizes him for who he is. Well, does that remind you of another story uh, in Scripture uh, some could say that this story, the story of Hagar and the angel of the Lord, um, is the original woman at the well that we're told about in John 4. And I just think that's really cool. Um, and so then the angel, in verse 8, the angel then um, asked a really interesting question. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah. First of all, he reminds her who she is, or at least what her station in life is. Uh, servant of Sarah, where have you come from? And where are you going? Um, great question. Really good question. It's a very powerful two-part question. Of course, he knows where she's coming from and where she's going. Um, and, and, but, but he wants her to figure out her place in this story. Um, you know, there's another way to ask that question. 
Hagar, what are you running from? And then what are you running to? Um, so let's set Hagar aside for, for just a minute. And I want to ask this of you, is he asking, and me, is he asking the same question of us this morning? Um, you see, God tends to ask questions so we can figure out our place in the story. Uh, remember Genesis 3 when he asked Adam, where are you? Uh, in Matthew 16, um, Jesus asked probably the most important question in the history of mankind. Who do you say that I am? He's talking to Peter. Who do you, Peter, say that I am? Um, so he asked really good questions, but the questions are always designed for us to figure out where we are in the story. So we'll get back to those questions in just a minute. Let's, let's, let's return to the story of Hagar. What's her response? Her response in verse 8 is, I'm running away from my mistress. Well, he doesn't say, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry about that. I'm sorry that you've been mistreated. There doesn't appear to be much compassion here. But as you'll see, that comes a little bit later. In verse 9, um, the angel says, the angel of the Lord uh, told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Go back to, go back to that and submit to a woman who is mad at me and probably would kill me if she could because she's so upset you want me to go back to that? Yes, I want you to go back um, and recommit to a really hard situation for the time being. Um, and I think what the angel is saying to Hagar is, neither your work nor my work is done here. Um, because unlike what Abram and Sari at least believed at this point, I have a plan, and I need you to trust in that plan. So, in, But he doesn't just say that. He doesn't just say, go back and do something hard. In verse 10, um, he gives her some hope. He says, uh, verse 9, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Then verse 10, the angel added, he added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. So he adds a promise. When he asks her to do something hard, he adds a promise for a blessing. And this isn't just a minor blessing. This isn't just a, um, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, make it all better. This is a major blessing. This is a blessing that God had reserved for only the patriarch of the Jewish people, Abram. Um, that he would make her descendants so numerous they would not be able to count. All right, then verses 11 and 12. Um, I'm just going to read the whole thing. The angel of the Lord also said to her, so now he's giving her a little bit of insight into what this is going to look like with her descendants. Uh, you are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all of his brothers. Now, that may, it may not sound like good news to you, the kind of guy that Ishmael is going to be. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but the word Ishmael literally means God hears or the Lord has heard. And so I'd like to think that Hagar, when she hears this, that she 
lived her entire life as a mother, that every time she called his name, no matter how much trouble Ishmael was, every time she called his name or thought about his name, uh, that she was reminded of the God who found her and heard of her misery and blessed her. Now, being a wild donkey, what does that mean? That simply just means he's going to be nomadic. He's going he's to move around. He's never going to stay in one place. He's going to roam the desert. And then that he's going to be in hostility. Well, essentially what God is telling her is that there are consequences for decisions um, and that he's going to cause trouble, but, he, but she is, he is still going to bless Ishmael. Um, and this is simply a recognition by God to Hagar and then to, to Sari and Abram at some point that the hostility between Sari and Hagar um, is going to be passed on to their descendants. Uh, our choices have consequences, and sometimes they are very long-lasting and maybe even eternal consequences. So, having told Hagar what Ishmael was going to, Ishmael was going to be like, I think this is kind of the really cool part uh, of the story. Um, uh, because the Lord says to her, this is what you're going to name your son. And then Hagar says, and we're in verse 13, Hagar says, <clears throat> she, or, or at least the text says, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. So God says, you're going to name Ishmael, Ishmael. And, and Hagar says, oh yeah, well, I've got a name for you. She says, I'm going to name you the God that sees me. Just let that sink in for just a minute. She's saying, I'm, I'm not a slave anymore. I'm not an outcast anymore. That I'm somebody that the God, the creator of the universe, sees and hears. This is a, a, just a, a, a real picture of intimacy here in this conversation. Um, I see you. I see you for who you are. And you see me for who I am. Is there really any more of an intimate conversation that two people can have? Is that we see who you are and you see us for who we are? This is the, there's a, just a kindness and a tenderness in that statement on both sides, both the angel and Hagar. And that's because we've got a God who pursues us. And he blesses us, and he wants to be intimate with us. Um, the, the rest of the passage is pretty, pretty simple. Uh, um, so Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave him the name Ishmael. Obviously, Hagar had told Abram about, uh, about what had happened. Uh, gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 80 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. We don't find a whole lot more out about uh, uh, Sari and, and Hagar's relationship, but I would like to think that when Hagar came back and she told 
uh, Abram and Sari what happened, that there was some reconciliation there, at least among the three of them. And maybe with Abram and Sari, she was an instrument, Hagar was an instrument of reconciliation for them as well. Um, so I want to talk about uh, a couple of lessons uh, that we've learned here. Um, and then I want to give a comment, and then I want uh, to ask you a couple of questions. Um, the first lesson I think we've learned is that God is a relational God. Um, he's all about relationships, and he puts an extremely high value on intimacy in relationships with both him and with each other. And then the second lesson, at least that I learned uh, from this, is uh, that God is a God of rescue. And not just from sin. Uh, you know, we put a lot of emphasis, and rightfully so, on the rescue um, that Jesus did for us on the cross with his blood. Rightfully so, that we put emphasis on that. But God rescues us from other things. He, he also rescues us from hopelessness, like Hagar had. He rescues us from broken relationships. And he rescues us from a life that's less than abundant. Jesus said, I came to give life and give it abundantly. He's rescuing us from a life that is anything less than abundant. I've got a comment here while I'm, while I'm doing this, and I'll get to the questions. I'm going to ask Tanner and, and Allie and, and the guys to come up, and, and um, we're going to praise God after this. But um, I always ask myself when I'm reading the Old Testament, I'd like for you to do the same thing, is um, how does what the Scripture in Old Testament is saying by the way, I, I took your, uh, Allie, I took your music stand. I'm sorry about that. I'll give it to you in just, back to you in just a second. I always ask myself, how is this passage of Scripture that is, you know, thousands of years old, how does it point to Jesus? Because the Old Testament wasn't inspired by God just to describe the history of his establishment and then constant pursuit of the Jewish people by virtue of the, old, of the old covenant. But it was inspired by God to point us toward Jesus, who would fulfill the old covenant and establish a new covenant. So how does it, how does it point to Jesus? Well, um, I think the angel of the Lord's encounter gives us a glimpse of the kind of grace uh, that can only be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's how this scripture points to Jesus. And then let's talk about a couple of questions, and I'm going to give them by intentional questions, and then uh, Tanner and Allie are going to play. Where do you see yourself in this narrative? Are you, are you Sari? Are you struggling with a, maybe a lack of faith? Or feeling like you, you can't trust his promises because of whatever circumstance you've got going on? And are you thinking about taking things into your own hands? Are you Abram? Are you just passively going along with what you know to be in conflict with God's plan? Or are you Hagar? Or you may be a victim of abuse or neglect and wondering whether God sees you and sees your misery um, because you're in a circumstance that may seem hopeless. No matter where you see yourself, 
the angel of the Lord's questions must be answered by you. Where have you come from and where are you going? Maybe the better question or better way to say it is what are you running from or who are you running from and what are you running to or who are you running to? And I'm just going to encourage you to to ask those questions of yourself this week as I've been doing of myself this week. And when you do, I think you'll find that God's got something to say. Because this relational rescuing God, He loves you too much to leave you where you are. Let's pray and then we're going to sing. God, we just are so thankful that you do pursue us and you love us. And even though we're all outcasts to some extent, um, when the scripture says that the angel of the Lord found Hagar, that's because he was looking for her. He just didn't happen upon her. He was looking for her. And God is... We know that you're looking for us and that you love us too much to let us stay in our place of brokenness or our place of hopelessness or our place of doubt. And so we just pray that this week as we ponder these words and and of Scripture that, that we would ask ourselves, are we running from something? And if we are, help us to start running toward you. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we pray all this in your powerful and precious and holy name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. 